0: Welcome to the Hearts in Recovery podcast, talking about sexual abuse and dissociative identity disorder, DID. Today is an episode where Melissa Balecki interviews Professor Terry McAteer, husband of Chris McAteer, who, as you know, has DID. Terry talks frankly, with Chris chiming in occasionally, about what it is like to live with a partner who suffers from DID. Let's listen into their conversation.
1: Chris and I spend a lot of time talking about dissociative identity disorder, so I thought that I would kind of get your perspective on it, and what it's like for you to support and be so close to someone who has DID. So I guess what I would want to start off with is did you know anything about DID before you met Chris?
2: Yeah, Joanne Woodward and Sally Field. That was the extent of my knowledge. Just like
1: 90% of baseline.
2: Americans would that's a good also... a
1: baseline. I, I mean...
2: It's a starting point.
1: It is. How do you think that perspective or idea changed as you got to know Chris?
2: Well, to start with, it wasn't just a question of getting to know Chris. It was a question of getting to know, ultimately, almost everybody in the system. But in the early stages, several of the more open alters, and as with the beginning of any relationship on any level in any circumstance it's a question of getting to know who the person is and how the person thinks how the person responds to situations to stimuli and I never thought of them not as people are they all part of this system called Chris yeah but you don't say that because you have a thumb and a big toe in a singular body that they're the same. They're not. The bone structure is different. The articulation is different. And I'm sure Cassie is in there now planning some kind of revenge for my calling her a big toe. But that's <laughs> that's Cassie. And that's one of the things I know about Cassie or came to know, have come to know about Cassie. I never saw them melodramatically as Hollywood has presented the situation. You know, two, I think one of the things that helped me with that is that the initial introduction to, to Cassie, to Lisbeth, to a couple of the littles, I don't think Sam-I-Am came out online, I don't remember offhand, um, was that I wasn't seeing a face, and I wasn't therefore confused when the voice changed, or the, the vocabulary changed, or the rhythm of speech changed, while the face stayed the same, because it was just the words, the words being typed on the screen in the chat room that made it a little easier for me to from pretty much day one be able to distinguish uh, among the others who were coming out to talk that had to be at the bottom line I think.
1: Did you sense that when you read those messages in the chat that how did you tell how were you able to tell that it was someone different or was it the tone was it the the actual spelling of words how how did you know something was different
2: sure um first of all I was still getting to know Chris at this point I had I don't know four weeks maybe of what I understood to be just Chris before Chris started telling me that Cassie wanted to come out and say hello, or Chrissy Little wanted to come out and say hello, whoever it might have been. And so that gave me a context for the language. It wasn't that I was trying to fit the Cassie part of Chris into the Chris part of Chris that I knew. She was kind of the ringmaster or MC, if you want a a show business term, uh, in terms of introducing me to everybody. And while we were online, I don't think there were that many who came out, maybe half dozen, but it was once we got together first at Montauk and then Chris came back east for good, that I clearly started getting to know everybody because you know regardless of how big your family is if you're all trapped in one apartment you get to know each other
1: <laughs> so did they introduce themselves by name
2: to oh you? yeah yeah
1: and and you said Cassie was the first one to want to speak to you
2: oh yeah she came to check me out
1: because she's known as the gatekeeper right
2: absolutely and she does a hell of a job
1: So she
2: wanted to check you out. Oh, yeah, and make sure I was safe.
0: Definitely. There There was a real problem with getting to know people back then because some people just weren't safe for the system to be around.
2: And I think one of the things that made it easy for Cassie to accept me is that I would call her out on things so she knew she was dealing with somebody I don't want to say on her level I don't know that anybody's on Cassie's level but who could compete
0: What was her reaction to that?
2: Chris was going to say something
0: I think that Cassie's reaction to you was this guy is real we're not getting any bullshit here he's real and that was a great relief to her
1: From what I have read, it seems like there's been a lot of deception or manipulation. So that's kind of the way that she gauges things. If she can allow herself and you to get closer to this person.
2: Yeah, she also doesn't want Chris associating with somebody who can't take the heat.
1: So you were saying how you were confused at first when the altars would come out, but you would still see Chris's face.
2: No, it was actually the opposite. Because, I mean, there was the possibility for that confusion, but it was minimized by the fact that first Chris, or in in one or two cases, the altar herself, or himself, would introduce, would say, hi, Terry, I'm Cassie, But the fact that I had the introduction from one or another person made it easier for me to, while not seeing Chris's face, because remember this is prior to any kind of Zoom or Skype thing. These are Mm -hmm. old time chat rooms. We didn't even have avatars or icons or anything. You just had text. So I could start tracing the language, the syntax, the particular speech rhythms that each of the individuals had. You know, having been an English teacher for so many years and a writer for so many years, that certainly uh, was to my advantage in this, because I have an an almost innate sensitivity to language. But that was the situation.
1: And you think that made the transition to when Chris came... East, a little bit more seamless for you.
2: It made it easier. I don't know that I would use the word seamless, because in those early times, especially once. All right. So, first time we met was on uh, basically Halloween weekend. Then Chris came east again for the holidays, for Christmas. And then it was at that point that we knew the next time was going to be the permanent move. And she came in mid to late April. So at that point, we're we're together. And the change in locale, the fact that however troubled life had been in Phoenix, it was a known quantity. Coming into Brooklyn, adjusting to the new living space, adjusting to finding a job in a city that's very different from Phoenix, all of that was troubling to a lot of the system. Because while at that point Chrissy Little, certainly Cassie and Lizbeth, probably by now Sam I am, were to varying degrees comfortable with me. The rest of the system was troubled. And so there was a great deal of agitation that we had. To deal with and again this too is before Chris was connected with a therapist so we were kind of I don't want to say flying blind but pretty close to it in terms of stabilizing things normalizing things
0: and don't forget on top of that I had left Charles there was a lot going on
1: why do you think that some of the alters had more trouble transitioning than others is it because some of them were more comfortable with Terry
0: the, the whole mix I think caused the discomfort there was a lot of agitation and there was just a sense of being lost of not knowing what was going on of being afraid and just not feeling secure and safe with terry they always felt safe but there was time spent on the subway there was time spent at work amongst strangers there was adjusting to a new city by myself so all of that was very agitating yeah i imagine
1: that all of those emotions that were coming up were things that you felt back when you were a child? They were, they were. So it it makes sense to me that there'd be, um, I mean, just like any person, and you know, they're all individual people. So it makes sense that they'd have that reaction to a new place and all these new, all these new things kind of coming at them at once, so.
2: That's a very important um, point that we can never lose in in the conversation, Mel, that these are all individuals and if you've got 30 individuals experiencing quote-unquote the same objective reality, like Chris said, uh, riding the subway or learning to navigate the subway system in New York, that's not going to be one it's one event, but it's not going to be one reaction, it's going to be thirty reactions. And when you have that pent up in a, a narrow and closed space, that's chaos. And even though there was no animosity, there was enormous uncertainty.
1: At that time, were the altars
0: communicating with each other? Some of them were. There was still a, a wall of amnesia between some of them. But the altars who were the strongest were communicating with one another. And some just chose not to show themselves.
1: Do you think the stronger ones were able to kind of help soothe the ones who were a little more
0: agitated? They tried. There was definitely the effort going on. It wasn't always successful.
1: So at times it might have been kind of a group effort to calm the system, but other times it was just too overwhelming.
0: Yes. And when it was overwhelming, there was chaos. How did
1: you respond to that? What was kind of going on for you, like emotionally, physically? How would you cope with that, I guess?
0: Is that for Terry or for me? For you. I just tried to ground myself and hold on with all my might. There were crying jags. There were times I exploded at Terry. There were panic attacks panic attacks right and I just tried to hold on really tight to myself and you were in some therapy before right
1: so I imagine you tried to think of those skills that you can use but I I can see and understand how those can go out the window when it's just complete overwhelm and so intense
0: but the therapy I had had prior was just being diagnosed Oh, okay. So I didn't really have any tools to use. Oh, that'll
1: make it a million times harder. But what about you, Mac? What was your kind of observation to that period of time that Chris was going through?
2: This might come as a surprise to you, Mel, but I can be stubborn.
1: Can't uh, mm -hmm. I? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: And so um, I had just made up my mind that Chris was the one, and that was the bottom line. And nobody was going to get in the way of that. I think I mentioned once before, one of the things that I used to say to Chris when things were destabilized was that I would fight anybody for her, including her, which I did.
0: But she did.
2: But at the same time, I wanted to try to have the others be comfortable with me so that we could talk with some of them, especially the ones that I had known online. That was not really a challenge because we had already established the distinctive relationships. With some of the others, it was, it was tougher because, again, all the different people, the different ages, the different levels of maturity, the diff- different levels of experience, all of that came into play uniquely with each interaction.
1: Which relationship have you had to work on the hardest?
2: (sighs) Peggy and Jack.
0: Definitely Peggy and Jack. Why? Because they're the drinkers in the system.
2: And I, I wouldn't say that we didn't get along, but Peggy and Jack, either individually or as a team, brought another complicating element to the mix that any addictive behavior will bring. They'll lie.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, In recent years, there's been no problem. In fact, even before Chris stopped drinking, for herself and for the system, Peggy and I especially were pretty amicable. Jack always stayed back a little bit, but Peggy and I could talk, and I could usually call her out on stuff. Did
1: and, she
2: that? that? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say, and she begrudgingly accepted it. I
0: had to come up with a real strategy when I quit drinking to soothe Peggy and Jack because they felt like they were losing and they actually had grief over the fact that they weren't drinking anymore so I had to come up with some things like you could have a nice hot chocolate or we'll go for a walk or we'll ask Terry if we can watch this musical tonight things like that yeah
1: kind of reassuring them that there's other ways to get what they need Right. Was it clear to you from the beginning, Mac, the purpose of DID and the altars?
2: Well, Chris explained it to me. I I wouldn't begin to suggest that I intuited it in any way. Um, Chris was just a good guide for me through the system. And then once Chris connected with Heather and then A little later on, her psychiatrist, Brenner, they also gave me additional insights into the the structure and the workings of a system like Chris's, but all the groundwork had been well laid by Chris. She well understood what was going on and was able to convey it.
0: We discovered somebody new, not really new, but new making herself known in the system just this past six weeks or so. And she's called the narrator, and she's been in the background narrating my life from the time I was a very little girl. Wow. What has that been like for you, to find that uh,
1: piece of you? A relief. Is it helping to make more sense of some
0: things? Well, I can understand now why I always thought of myself as she instead of I or we. Hmm. Do you want to say more about that? Yes. I would just be doing something like when I was little, walking around my, my yard and a voice would speak up and say, she's walking around her yard. And I thought, that's very strange. And it was a relief, I mean, because even now I, I can hear her telling me things. It was a relief to know that there was a reason for it, that there was another person there. What do you think her purpose is? She's a threat of continuity. She knows everybody's story.
2: She's also been your dress rehearsal. Yes. You're so good a writer because you've been practicing for all these years.
1: Since I was little. So, Mac, as you kind of look back on the time when Chris moved out here to where she is now, what's it been like? watching her as she goes through therapy and recovery?
2: That's such a tough one to answer because it's trying to it's trying to create a singular image of something that was so so numerous in its aspects which I guess is a a statement in, in and of itself about what the experience was like there were just so many things that one thinks about there was the time that we literally spent 24 hours in an emergency room trying to get Chris first some attention and then get her stabilized 24 hours
0: and that happened more than once
2: Yeah, there were the other times when we just had fun that had nothing to do with the DID but at the same time everything to do with the DID because you're never apart from it there was the deep relief for both of us for all of us when heather came up with her idea for the crystal cave which provided a safe haven for everybody the elements are myriad
1: mm-hmm. and it's it's not a linear process either it's um
2: oh god no
1: yeah
2: no compared to this The cyclone at Coney Island is a linear
1: process. (laughs) Yeah, and I think, at least from what I know about mental illnesses, recovery is a constant thing that one is working at, and there's never really an end point. It's just something you have to keep monitoring and taking care of to keep symptoms and a person functioning as well as they can. So you never know what's gonna trigger something. So I imagine, I mean, I don't know, but are there things that you are cautious of or situations or
0: patterns that you know may aggravate the system? As we are drawing close to the end of the semester, There are papers due, there are finals, and the stress level has been rising. And I noticed that on the inside, there were some who were not feeling very calm. So what I've done is when I notice that, I take a very firm stand of giving myself the attention I need in order to stabilize whoever on the inside is not feeling calm. For example, I, I would tell them, okay, I know it seems overwhelming right now, but we only have a few more weeks to go and there'll be a break from this and you can accomplish this.
1: It sounds like a lot of changing the self-talk that's going on in your head. And, yes. uh, and a lot of, I guess, a lot of doubt and negativity that you heard when you were a child is kind of those automatic thoughts that they have. Is that, yeah. So yeah, you're like, I think you mentioned in Daddy Sir, and I know you're gonna be mentioning in many voices that you kind of have to mother the
0: system. I definitely do. They never had an effectual mother. And they, Crave that. They crave having someone maternal they can go to who will nurture them and who is safe. And I try to give them that.
1: Do you think that's also important, Mac, for her to do?
2: The whole issue of parental history is so woven into the the texture of the system. So, yeah, what what Chris said about the Absence of any viable maternal presence was certainly a um, detrimental to the system. But on the other side, the presence of a malicious paternal presence also worked its way intricately into the, the tapestry of the system. And dealing with that kind of by default felt fell to me a little bit, because I was the next male figure in line to be interactive with the system in any way, uh, with Chris in any way, and navigating that was not very easy, because I had to, for many of them break down the images of the negative experience experiences that they had had experiences isn't, isn't the right word negative role modeling that they had seen from not only the father but the husband which is how the system often referred to them by the way with the article in front of the name, of the noun, not just mm-hmm. the noun itself, which in and of itself says something. It's an objectification rather than a humanization. And naturally, I was going to be tainted with that in the early going, for some, not for all.
1: I asked this one last time, but... Chris, obviously, has been through hell. So when you did and when you continue to learn about her life and everything that she has gone through, what does that feel like to you?
2: What does it feel like in retrospect or what did it feel like at the moment? Both. I was afraid you were going to say that. At the moment... At any given moment along the way, I had no idea what the next second was going to bring. And so it was not a comfortable place to be because of that, but I I never second-guessed my decision to be with Chris. I remember telling her not all that long ago, it was something that I just had not thought of for years but in all the time we were having the really rough stretch there was never a day when i was driving home from school when i wanted to be going somewhere else
0: i remember you telling me that
2: looking back at it i'm I'm glad it's been a part of my life because it has taught me a great and enormous amount about life. I wouldn't trade that for anything. And I wouldn't trade Chris for anything either.
1: (laughs) What would you say is the biggest thing being with her has taught you?
2: Well, when you asked me that question once before, I gave you an answer and I'll give it to you again, but there's another answer, too, that occurs to me today. For most of our time together, every year we've gone out to Montauk on on or about Halloween weekend, which was the anniversary of our first time out there, and one time, I don't know, fourth, fifth, sixth year, on our way back home, the tailpipe dropped and had to pull over and secure it so that we could get back without trailing sparks behind us the whole way. And I did it without any real fuss and Chris after I got back in the car said how amazing it was because if that had happened a few years before I'd have lost it. The other thing is kinda connected with the answer to the the previous question. Getting to know the system, getting to see how interconnected it all is, has changed my perception of what we call a soul. That it's not anywhere near as simplistic as the chalk drawing that the good nuns placed on the blackboard many years ago in front of me.
1: So if if people are listening who are trying to be a support or know someone with DID, is there anything that you've learned or do that you would offer up as advice?
2: Don't do it because you think it's going to make you proud of yourself. Do it because you need to do it for the other person. Because being proud for yourself or of yourself ain't going to carry the day.
1: Okay, so I I just want to remind everyone that Chris's book, Daddy Sir, is available on Amazon. And Chris is on all social media, Twitter, Facebook. Please give it a follow. All the information is in the description. And don't forget to just subscribe to wherever you're listening on, whether it be Spotify or iTunes or any other platform, so that you don't miss when a new episode comes out. So I think that's it for us today.
0: Thank you so much, Mel.
2: Great talking with you, Mel.
0: All right, guys. See you next time. Okay. Take take care. care.